Hi, I'm Katie McCool, Demand Generation Specialist here at Stavi, and you're listening to Finside Chats. Welcome to the Finside Chats podcast. This podcast is for the relentlessly curious and dives headfirst into the timely and complicated topics that live and breathe in the fintech, startup, and mortgage lending spaces. I am your host and CEO and founder of Stavi, Costa Ligris, alongside my co-host and Stavi's very own Chief Evangelist, Jeremy Potter, in studio live today. We are joined by Eric Lappin of FormFree, a company whose patented technology is building a more transparent and inclusive credit and capital market by enabling creditors to understand a person's ability to pay and willingness to pay. Potter, I think those are two different things. Correct. Jeremy, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Eric? I mean, absolutely. you, you know this guy. <laughs> right on. It's good to be co-hosting beside you, Costa. Thank you. As Form Free's Chief Strategy Officer, Eric leverages more than 25 years experience in the industry. So marquee mortgage technology firms, financial institutions, steering strategic vision and partnership, all driving Form Free's growth. So his responsibilities are monitoring those business initiatives, execution, identifying key capital projects, driving strategic partnerships, overseeing communications, Eric is got it all. So I'm excited. Eric, you uh, are a graduate of Old Dominion University, playing drums and bands in Charleston, South Carolina. We're going to want to talk about form free and innovation, but I have a lot of questions about Charleston and playing drums in your spare time as well. So excited that you're here. Welcome. I'm all set with form free. I want to talk about music now. Yeah. I'm in a... uh... I'm in a tribute band that just does uh, anything that's done by Galactic, Soul Live, Lettuce, Rush, or uh, right on, you know, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And it's just like six of us drummers, and we just we do melodically what they do with other instruments. We just do it all with percussion. So we get about three or four people per show, and uh, those four or five guys love it. You know, and we just keep the shows going. So Eric, first of all, thank you. Welcome. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule and uh, and joining us here today. Let's start a little bit with Form Freeze philosophy, which is that sort of direct source data is a better assessment of a person's ability to pay than traditional credit vetting. Can you explain a little bit more to, to us about that and how Form Free is sort of leading that charge and changing the way uh, traditional credit has been used? Sure, sure. Well, our vision here is to leverage source data and, and, and the intelligence that comes with it. So data-driven intelligence we look at it as ushering a new era of transparent, fair, and, and liquid credit markets, as well as providing a, an inclusive, fair lending opportunity for anyone that wants to borrow money. So uh, as we say here, we believe that everyone borrows money. Everyone has the ability to pay some amount. And you know, we were really charged to help satisfy and collect that information and make the data intelligent. So when we're working with uh, you know our, our customers, which are, are the lenders, whether it's mortgage, auto, consumer, looking to get into other areas, you know, any type of lending. It can be BNPL, it can be micro lending, anywhere that there's an ability to pay some amount, we provide the data and analytics and that solution for the consumer to control that data, provide that information to the lender that they want to work with and then ability to pay analytics or, or put on top of that 
where you can look for any fair and inclusive lending decision to be made off of that. It sounds a lot like one of the solutions that when we think about incremental progress versus transformational progress, you know, this is one of those that falls more into the transformational because of what it cuts out of the process. It lets you get right at source data and it seems to make it easier on consumers, right? So instead of having me to do the work and generate paperwork or find the record, Form Free is helping consumers just directly engage with lenders. It seems like a big benefit to consumers. I have to do less work to apply for credit. What are you seeing from lenders in terms of savings or how are lenders uh, engaging with Form Free and giving you feedback about the benefits for them? Well, the, the benefits that we hear and, and we continue to hear this more so, especially in the, uh, in the market we're in today, where speed is more important than ever. You guys know that being at Stabby, I mean, you really take into what you guys do to a next level. What we're doing on the democratization of data with income, asset, employment, digital identification, and ability to pay analytics. Imagine being on the lending side where you have a file that's it's already, it's an underwritable file. So if I have this information that's pursued per permission to buy me as a consumer, I've got my, my asset statement in there. And what comes off that asset statement? Well, the analytics that we have utilizing natural language processing will allow that underwriter to see a myriad of, of data in there and, and to really review it as non-biased approach to lending. And what does that mean? It just means... What's the cash flow look like? What's the discretionary income look like? What is the true ability to pay as opposed to the traditional way like we know is we have a score today that we use. We've been using it for decades and it's helped a lot of people with home ownership. But what about that 40 million plus that's considered invisible that can't get in there and do that So or, or get in there to a home or any type of home, whether auto or personal? So the file becomes underwritable for the lender to where they really have a... a they have this information to where they don't have to ask me as the borrower for that missing May and June bank statement. Because when I attached it, I forgot as the consumer, I only gave them 10 out of 12. Well, four or five days goes by, it just depends on the volume of what's going on. If there's a lender that does a lot of builder business or purchase business, they may have a, uh, they may have a backup there with, with, uh, with underwriting. So the direct source data is also a big difference, meaning this is an information that I'm sending in with paper. I'm not sending it in. I'm not attaching it in an email. I'm not scanning it, attaching it that way. It's direct source with credentials that I give. Once I follow the process of where do I bank? It's open banking and open finance is what it is. And for those who aren't familiar with that, you know we're, we're at the dawn of open finance and open banking, which enables connections to FIs or financial institutions. And it helps drive better with security, transparency, convenience, driving it back to the way it does for the underwriting is if I have this convenience now, I'm underwriting a file, which I did uh, back in the 90s, it would be so nice to have all the information sent. And I don't have to worry about really a compliance issue or any sort of additional due diligence because I know that that came from the source. It came from that bank. It came from that lender. It came from that finance company. Direct source. That's what direct source means. So as a lender, I have that information that's generated direct source. Number two, it comes in complete without missing information. Number three, it has analytics on top of it that lets me know that if I'm a borrower and I'm a renter, I can see that that renter information is also captured in there. So, and there's analytics that can also dig in deep and say that, you know, I may be a renter is paying $2,000 a month, 
But what about if I pay on the first of one month or a third on another month or the seventh of another month? Or I like to pay double payments around Thanksgiving time, you know, and there's a history of doing that. Those are the types of things that get picked up and help the underwriting. Another reason I would say is the touches on the file internally, instead of it going from underwriter to processor, back to underwriter to processor, the touches it's called every time that file is touched, you can cut these touches by anywhere from 40 to 60%. Just depends on which lender we're talking about here, where they are in the digital uh, life cycle of their process. And then lastly, the cost to manufacture alone, they're astronomical based on data from MBA back in the spring. And it really hasn't changed much in discussions I've had recently. But if we look at small banks, large banks, IMBs, credit unions, you range anywhere from 8,300 to 10,700 to manufacture alone. 50 to 55% of that is in the loan officer sales bucket. And then 20 to 25% of that is in the fulfillment bucket. So underwriting process and closing. You got 75% right there that if you actually had this information permission to buy me as a consumer sent in, imagine the cost that comes down. So uh, the cost of manufacture loan, especially in, in discussions we've had with uh, senior consultants and some of the larger lenders that are going the true digital route beginning to end said that this cuts the cost by half. Yeah, instead of chasing income docs, folks can work on those harder, more human, more complex problems as well, right? So we're also thinking about how everything changes around partnerships, around more complex mortgage products. When you free up your staff to work on those harder, more interesting things, uh, rather than having to worry about where that PDF went or where that document went or re-verifying or re-scanning stuff in. So I can definitely hear you loud and clear on that. I am curious, just on a practical level, is it embedded technology for the lender in their ecosystem, meaning like in their LOS process? Is it accessed by the consumer and then integrated into the process? How are you seeing lenders interact with Form Free and what's the optimal placement? Well, there's a couple ways. Core businesses here is a solution called Account Check and 3-in-1, which is the income asset employment. And it's structured as the lender is our customer. And we have over 3,000 that we work with over the time frame of Form Free. The consumer will work with a, a bank, Bank XYZ, XYZ Bank, sends uh, either a text or an email to me as the consumer and says, this is a, a provider of ours that we work with, a partner. This is a secure link. If you'd like, this would make your process a lot quicker, a lot easier on you as well. If you'd like to, to, to put your credentials in, they're secure. The data doesn't stay with us, doesn't stay with them, but at least it can get transferred over direct from your bank accounts and or your employment information, just depending on what the scenario is. That is the way to do it. The way that we're um, really working towards is tokenizing that, basically saying a token is something that's a representation of something of value. And because of what we're seeing that's coming down as mandates from the regulatory bodies, such as FHFA, inclusive lending, non-biased lending, helping the credit invisible, helping the LMI, low to moderate income borrowers, in order to keep all that level playing field moving forward, and looking at credit profiles and ability to pay versus socioeconomic backgrounds, what better way to do that than through a tokenization where I control my information, I then own it, it's then tokenized and it can be sent to an exchange where any lender can then look at that and say, all right, this is a profile that fits us. You know, we've got lenders that want to have additional CRA business. Uh, in this metro area, or we have a lender that wants to buy jumbo in the Northeast, and we have another 
tranche of loans that needs to be filled for, you know, certain buckets of, of types of borrowers. So all that comes in just based on the profile. And, um, you know, moving towards that is, is it really fits into what we're seeing in the world too, with, with all sorts of lending and even getting into the digital centralized banking currencies, you know, what we're seeing with consortiums out there. There are consortiums, banks out there that are creating their own one-to-one stable coins. So I think cost is grabbing an umbrella to bring me back here to the mortgage side, but we're just gonna we're just gonna say that we're in a we're in a big pot of change right now. And personally speaking, love it. I've always wanted to see it, been in mortgage for 25 years. We're still doing stuff from 1995 that I can't believe we're still doing. The fact that e-closings are still less than 6% is shocking to me. I think paper should be outlawed for many reasons, and let alone for the process aspects of it. But with where we're going, the tokenization, everything's going to be tokenized, in my opinion. And when you can have PII held back until you have two parties that want to do business with one another, you now have transparency with security and privacy all bundled into one. I'm curious, Eric, what is your personal thought in terms of why adoption of digital on the closing side has taken so long? I mean, I agree with you, paper should be outlawed, but I'm wondering whether, and I'm going to tie this to form free, whether you're seeing similar hurdles in terms of adoption of some of the tools that you guys are are trying to implement into the financial markets as well. Do you think there's some analogies that you can draw there or similarities or is it completely different? The biggest thing is with, with everything that we're seeing in the industry is adoption. I think we saw the big adoption push with COVID. We're seeing it with reduction in force from a lot of companies, whether it's uh, on the partnership vendor side or on the lender side or, the, or even just any sort of analytics firms. We're seeing that there's a, a good core of loan officers that have been around decades that have done business the way they've always done it and been very successful. I think that's one thing is more of an advocacy or education process of how it makes their life easier and makes their consumers process a much more enjoyable experience. I think the other thing that to, to talk about is we still have you know, a little between 50, 60% of the loans going to the GSEs. I've got to commend them that in the last year, we're seeing a lot, a lot of movement in the digital space, whether it's on the uh, income asset employment space where we are, and then also what you guys are doing uh, as it deals with digital closings and remote online notarization, passing those laws. And I was at 41 states now for Ron. Maybe it's maybe a little more. 43. 43. Okay. But who's counting? (laughs) Yeah. You guys, you guys are counting. So yeah, I mean, couple all of that. I think the other thing that we're seeing is even though we're facing headwinds in the industry due to rising rates, we are seeing tailwinds from the GSDs. And just for an example, Q3 of last year, rent data inclusion is now, you know, the acceptance of on-time rental payments as a variable for assessing purchase sellability. This is the first time a GSE has used this alternative for credit decisioning. Beginning of this year, you saw that um, Freddie Mac allowed direct deposit for AIM. AIM is their automated income modeler. Uh, it's released for all lenders to, and, and they can leverage our, you know, our firm free verification of assets, identify the income. And then Fannie Mae this year, Q2, rent data inclusion, acceptance of rental payments for that. And then really what I think is notable to mention is the Office of Financial Technology from FHFA that was appointed by Sandra Thompson over to Jason Cave to run that. We've had some conversations with them and working together to help advance this and as well as craft standards that are used by GSEs as well as non-GSE lenders. The last thing I'll leave you with, with adoption, 
I think the lenders that have more of a centralized approach to centralized sales and processing and closing that are working within the organization have a better control of how that loan is is treated beginning to end. So the consumer experience is more consistent, whereas you have the ones that are more distributed with branches where they let everyone do their own thing. That also causes more auditing that has to happen at the home office. It counts, it, it allows or it requires more integrations that have to happen when you bring over a new team of loan officers and processors. Not saying it's a bad option. I'm just saying that some of those are those are reasons that we hear when you go distributed versus a centralized approach to going all e or all digital seems to be the better faster way to implement that on a national level, depending on the the size and uh, direction of the lender. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the rate environment and some of the, you know, the headwinds and the tailwinds, obviously GSEs clearly uh, can can affect adoption. But I also think that this interest rate environment is going to require the lending community, regulators and investors to think differently about ability to pay. And I think willingness to pay to me in this environment, at least falls a lot into the demographics, which is a large generation of home ready home buyers really are probably going to keep demand pretty strong relative to uh, what we've seen. Uh, Maybe not as high as when you had a two and a half mortgage. Sure. But still I'm ready in my life to buy a house now. And I have, and the numbers tell us that there are mortgage ready millennials out there at that stage. So actually in that sort of, necessity is the mother of invention concept. We're actually at a time where ability to repay is going to, and ability to pay is going to be a critical question as people look for, you know, new ideas and new ways to access home ownership. So this should be exactly the time people are thinking about and rethinking how to work with consumers to get them the credit they need. Oh, great. And you know, with with our you know, what we call the ATP suite of analytics, ability to pay suite of analytics, the cash flow analysis, the discretionary income, being able to look at what's my cash going in, what's my cash left at the end of the month, what's typical for that month, and that's that's a true ability to pay. I believe more so than just a score, and I understand there's value to to that as well, and I think we've gotten to the point where it's it's just a perfect time to bring everything together. You need to have credit scores, uh, you know, to show the historical purpose or the historical willingness and ability to pay. But now look at the today and the, and the future. Bring those two together. You have credit meets asset. That's a pretty, pretty broad holistic approach to really notice and see what someone's ability to pay is. The aforementioned was you must get into debt to get more debt works. But what about for those that it doesn't work for? Then they're, they're not included in that decision-making anymore. So we're really saying that uh, you know a 620 borrower can pay like a 700 borrower. And the main reason being that you've got people that may have had a prior bankruptcy or had a one-time life event that really affected them. And they didn't want to go out and charge up debt again, get into installment revolving debt. They want to just say, look, look at my cash flow here. Second thing I would say to that is it casts a wider net for lenders to have the opportunity to originate more loans. Some of the lenders that we're speaking with are seeing anywhere from a five, you know, eight, sometimes 10% more loans to look at when looking at a cash flow analysis. And it might help them lift their internal overlay standards on credit, meaning if 
if Fannie is going to go down to, let's say, uh, you know, 620 and Jenny May, the FHA goes down to 580. What if that lender had the credit overlays of an extra 20 or 40 or they wouldn't touch the deal? Well, now they can look at that and say, you know what, this cash flow analysis, this person's making money, never missed a payment on their home ever. They had a bankruptcy four years ago and it was due to a business. They're not doing that anymore. I mean, it's just those are the kind of things that you can really review and look at the ability to pay versus just determining through a score that there's nothing there uh, to lend to this person. So, Democratization, lending for humanities, what we like to say, and everyone should have the ability to pay some amount back based on the cash flow. So, Eric, is there a piece of technology or something that you use that you could not do your job without? And I know uh, Stavi is probably right up there, but let's, let's talk about something else. <laughs> probably my, you know, probably got to get my BlackBerry and then sign into my MySpace business account. Those two together probably gets me off and running early in the morning. Yeah, right next uh, to your thermal paper fax machine. Yeah. Right carrier pigeon. So I would say probably I have a Norwegian ergonomic mewling chair that I sit on. I would lift it up and show it to you, but, um, please don't do that. It, okay. Um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, yeah, that's it, for me, it, it works well because, um, I don't know if you've ever sat on one of those, but I don't have, you know, you'll get, you don't get back issues from that since we've all been on the video calls for the last couple of years. When I went to this, my back pain went away. That's really so, cool. That's, uh, that's what I use. Yeah, one of the things that we like to do is ask you some questions that we're already kind of getting to know you, drummer, cover bands, tribute bands, um, and I got a couple more for you, okay? So what's the best place, your favorite place? What's the recommended place to grab a drink or some food in Charleston? Oh, this is going to cause controversy. I know. This, yes. it's, it's known as a foodie town, right? So it if is. I'm coming down there to see the band play, what am I hitting up? Where do I have to go? So I will say this, Connie Nast, Traveler Magazine, and I think the New Yorker, there was another one that said number one, two, and three cuisine in the country is Charleston now. And wow. it's not just shrimp and grits here. I got to tell you that. Yeah, um, expectations. You know, there's a lot of great places here. My personal favorites, there's a place uh, called The Ordinary. It's right downtown on King Street which is not ordinary at all. It just has different types of food with different flavors. It's got great presentation. If you want something that's a very special type of meal that you want to go with someone with, there's a restaurant called Zero George. Excellent. Brunch places, I'd say Obstinate Daughter, which is outside of Charleston in a little island called Sullivan's Island, if you've ever been there. And, and for, uh, for any of the burger foodies, I would have to say a place called Community Table and uh, Pose. Nice. Some good names in there. Obstinate yeah, Daughter is a restaurant that makes you curious to go there. It sounds like like I, that name alone makes me want right. to check it out. I have, I got one more. I like thinking about books, audiobooks, maybe podcasts. What are you uh, sharing, recommending or gifting in that category of, of audiobooks or books or authors? Do you have a book you've given most often or that you would recommend most often? Yeah, I would say I've read, uh, you know, well, we talked about it a little bit earlier, Blinkist. I thought Blinkist was good. Did you like that one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always get one of the things that Gladwell does, I think, uh, that's interesting is just make you look at things differently. Right. And yeah. so it, that kind of like turning things on their heads or, and whether or not you agree with his conclusions, there's, it's always, there's always something there that, that makes you think about the world differently. Oh, yeah. Um, there's another one called Snow Crash. 
uh, by Neil Stevenson, I always thought was good. And then uh, the dichotomy of leadership. Mm. Yeah, that's from uh, Jocko. Um, Jocko right Wolnick. Yes. Right on. Posting his sweat and watch four o'clock in the morning every day. <laughs> that's right. Um, I were an investor and wrote you a blank check for your own company. What problem would you want to address or want to solve? I would want to solve the high cost of getting a loan. I'm doing what I want to do as far as trying to solve. So solving for anything that's antiquated or considered legacy, I would want to bring 100% to the digital trusted data analytics stage. Everything along the way doesn't mean we don't need humans. I'm just saying beginning to end, everything digital. And I'll give an example. With what we're doing on the income, asset, employment, and ability to pay side here, with what you're doing at Stabby, with what uh, some title companies are doing with instant title, and I think on a national level is about one out of every three as far as the zip codes is, is, is concerned, there should be no reason why we can't originate a loan, communicate, process, underwrite, close in 10 business days or less in at least a third of the country today. So if I were an investor or venture capitalist, by the way, if I was, I would have a collared shirt that was light blue with a sweater vest that says Patagonia on it. <laughs> you ever talk to them? Necessary. You have to have it. You have to have all that. And you got to have it. My hair is kind of parted like theirs. Mine's a little messier. But there's and then you got your Wharton, your Wharton or your Harvard uh, degree behind you. Absolutely. Well, well yeah. Top two, of course, Stanford, Cornell, uh, all those. Uh, Old Dominion's not in that well, list. Well, let's like so. you're crazy with Cornell being on the top two of anything. Oh, is that oh, look at that. Shots fired. Is that oh. no. I like any question about you know dream job or what you would the problem you would want to solve, and it's the job you already have. So I mean, kudos it, you know, to you on that. Or, shit, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. That's the best. The job I'd want to have would be a touring drummer. There you I'm go. Gonna, I just got to put that out there. But oh, okay. Uh, good point of clarification. Brings it around. Yep. But that doesn't tie into the investor question. I don't know if I need. I probably just need a little bit step up chops to to get that case. Well, Eric, uh, keep jamming, keep beating Thanks, to Justin. the tune of your own drum. We appreciate you carving out time to talk to us here today, and we're excited to uh, to be your partners in digital transformation and getting rid of paper and making things easier and cheaper for consumers and the entire ecosystem. So we're, we're watching you guys carefully and excited to see what you guys do as well. Thanks, Costa. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for the download. For every podcast episode, please visit stavi.com forward slash finside dash chats or join us on your favorite podcast platform. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only and cannot be copied or broadcast without the consent of Stavi Incorporated. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide specific legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any products or business. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of Stavi. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors.